Hey, do you enjoy Geeks of Grimdark? Do you wish we produced more Warhammer content? Well, check out our ongoing series with this week's sponsor, Shooting the Shit with Chippa. Axel and I have a reoccurring series with host Chris Shipman, where we introduce him to 40k factions, one at a time. And once you're all caught up with that, check out all the rest of his amazing interviews on your favorite podcasting site today. Welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this, the darkest timeline. I'm Lord Commander Orc, and with me as always is... His shield brother, Axel Wright. How's it going today, man? It is okay. So I went to a candy store, like, a couple days ago, sir, I think for Mother's Day. Yeah, it was Mother's Day. And as while I was there, I got some stuff for myself, including something I'd never seen before called a Slowpoke Bar. And I've got it open next to me. It's a solid brick of caramel. Delicious, but it's just a brick of caramel. It's really funny to me. See, I remember those when those were called Sugar Dead. Yeah, so that's what uh, that's what my girlfriend said it reminded her of. That's what I remember them as. They were great for getting out loose teeth. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm trying to be very careful while I eat it. How are you doing? Yeah. Uh, Grandfather Nurgle visited me, and my throat is scratchy, and I have to talk for an hour. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, my friend. I have water on standby. Unfortunately, I'm coming out the other side of it, but it's just like ah oh, hell. Well, maybe your Not throat good. maybe your throat will feel better after a Patreon sound off. I'm hoping it will. Here goes nothing. Our patrons, the people that support this podcast to keep it free to you. They are Pam Gelly, Marquis, Chris Jimmy, River Gelly, Krug, Arthur Crane, Kevin May, Brendan Nenny, John Middles, Kit, Kenny, Seth, Decker, Dona Lucy, Patrick Anderson, Carson Mel, Scott Rubin, Derek Caddy, Peter. Now, if you'd like to join that illustrious legion, head over at patreon.com forward slash geeks with shields for the low, low entry fee of 25 cents an episode. That's a dollar a month. You get early access to all our content and you get to continue supporting the production of this show. And for our episode today, which we've been uh, talking around for a while, we have a special guest. Feel free to introduce yourself. Hi, guys. I'm uh, George Weird with Little Wars TV. All right. And now, t- today, well, Ulrich, what are we talking about with our with our illustrious guest? Well, I feel like we got to do a quick explanation on what Little Wars TV is for our audience that might not know you guys. Sure. Uh, so Little Wars TV is a YouTube channel that was started about four years ago. It grew out of our historical miniature wargaming club known as Army Group York. Uh, and uh, that's a group of people who have gamed together for a couple decades, uh, more or less, depending on the member. And uh, so in Little Wars TV, we produce, we film uh, war games that we play. And we encapsulate that usually in a historical uh, context, either visiting battlefields or research. And uh, Greg, with uh, who really heads up that effort for Little Wars, uh, pulls it all together and tells, I think, a very nice story and showcases the wargaming side of it as well. That sounds yeah, like I... it was tailor-made in your DNA, Ulrich. Yeah, I've been a fan of uh, these guys since, I think, season one. And nice. it is definitely fed the slow growing itch of like i i might want to dip my toe into some historical war game that might be uh something i need to do yeah because i don't know how much you know about us george but both of us engage in miniature war gaming or a little more so than myself but not necessarily the historical variant Sure. Yeah, neither sure. of us have crossed it. We both play 40K, Axel plays AOS, and I play A Song of Ice and Fire. So I'm getting incrementally okay. closer. Okay, well, you'd actually, uh, you'd, you'd be welcome at the club. Uh, everybody at the club uh, plays 
lots of different things. Uh, so uh, from board games to we always have an RPG going on. Somebody's running something at various times. And um, I know we have some very uh, avid uh, Warhammer and 40K uh, players at the club. So for us, it's it's about the games. And, you know, I'm just as happy to have a, as long as it's a fun and interesting game, uh, I, I'm happy to spend an evening do it. But, you know, our overall passion is historicals, but uh, we have a lot of fun with uh, anything that somebody's willing to put on the table. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, George, as a, a layman, essentially, and anyone listening who might be in my same position, I hear historical wargaming, and I think, well, that just sounds like miniature wargaming, but set in historical setting with, like, realistic historical types of gear, pieces, clothing, and stuff. Am I, am I on the ball, or is there more to Well, we'll go into the more to it later, but am I on the ball generally, in what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, so when you say pieces, historical, you mean the, the miniatures. The miniatures are all uh of a specific genre and period so that you know the, the buying a miniature for a period you expect it to have the roughly the right equipment and that's a big point of contention of how loose people will be in playing with that equipment and sometimes even when the sculptors are making miniatures for a certain period uh you know the historical evidence isn't always clear so you'll have endless debates around brick holes and all sorts of napoleonic gear but uh roughly said uh, you could take anything from a paper miniature, which we played with paper miniatures, uh, to our standard uh, metal miniatures or plastics. Um, and they're just, you know, they represent the period. Anything from ancient Greeks to very modern warfare. I have, I've worked exclusively with plastic. I've seen some people working with resin in my own experience, and I've avoided metal at all costs. <laughs> I've heard about metal. Well, uh, you know, they, they got the lead out of it many years ago. It's largely... <laughs> uh, but that's why, uh, I mean, my understanding is in the U.S., used to, it's still, there's a lot of miniature makers here, but there was a little gap when they chased lead out. But they're, they're very neutral and very safe, um, although chewing on them isn't advised. But one of the things you'll find in people's discussion, and I do have plastics, most of mine are uh, metals of various scales, but there is something about the heft to the miniature. So by the time you get it on the table and on a base, depending on whether you're basing them singly or as units, you know, I, I like the heft of it, but you can solve that with plastics usually by whatever, however you base them, put sand on the base and just, you know, it's a feel thing. It's a tactile thing that some people don't care about. I like it, but I also have bought plastics because they can be much more flexible in altering them, for example, yeah. or getting more poses out of them uh, than you would get with, you know, your typical miniature sometimes. Yeah, that that was my well, one of my big thoughts was the, the, the ease of customization. And your 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 point about debating about historical accuracy necessarily of a of a model sounds like the ultimate evolution of the WYSIWYG discussion that I'm used to, which you know, the what you see is what you get discussion. But now we've taken it to another right. another place. That's right. And and that's actually an interesting angle. So there's a there's the three foot rule or the six foot rule. So you people can be very obsessive and I have at points, I've gotten better at it, of the painting quality and how things should look. And then at the end of the day, you end up, you're playing with them from three to six feet away. And given your eyesight, it's likely, um, you know, most of those details are lost unless you're filming. But I think it's, I'm more of an impression. It's like, I do, I do believe in making an attempt to, you know, get them accurate, certainly in terms of color palettes. Um, but I'm, I'm more of an impressionist of, you know, look, if I look at that from three feet away, I, I should, 
probably be able to figure out whether it's an American Civil War army or a you know German army from World War II. And as long as that works, <laughs> I, I'm reasonably happy with it. I understand that. I only just am currently painting my first models that have open human faces, and I screwed uh-huh. up my first face, and I, I just kind of looked at it and went... You know, no one's going to be able to tell unless they pick it up and look at it. I'm not trying to do eyes again. I tried eyes on the first one, which was not a smart move. But You, you don't paint eyes. No one can see eyes. I was experimenting, yeah. figuring it out. <laughs> I, I if do you can wonder... do it well, I've seen it, I've seen it well done, but uh, I avoid it myself. I do a lot of shadow on the eyes. I, I do wonder how many people are afraid to get into historical wargaming because they're afraid of, you know, well, what if the outfits aren't right? What if I don't have the correct uniform markings? Are they going to, are they going to yell at me or... You know, do I need to bust out my, you know, tome of Napoleonic warfare, arms, armor, and uniforms? And I, I don't know if, the, is that really a thing people have to worry about? Or is that just, that's up to you? As long as it looks like it belongs, no one's going to kick you out of the club. Yeah, so certainly in our club. Uh, but but I'd say it's gotten better. There's certainly the uh, stereotype, and I've met some of them, so it's more than a stereotype, of uh, people who think it's critically important to be as accurate as possible. Although, again, dealing with historical evidence, that's up for debate sometime. But it shouldn't be intimidating now. And and it really is. My Our basic rule is if, if somebody's that into that or that's their objection, then you probably don't want to play with them anyway because they probably have other playing habits that you might not find enjoyable. Um, historical War Games our, version uh, of that guy. Yeah, that's that guy. They do exist. Uh, But I I think that's faded somewhat. And I think there's certainly ways to get into it with, um, you know, there, for example, uh, there's now these epic, it's Warlord comes out with these, I think they're 13 millimeter plastics. The units are fairly, they're they're very clean and detailed and, and they give you paint guides. So there's lots of ways and companies that'll help you get into it quickly. But yeah, worrying about the exact, um, detail and color is is missing the you know the the forest for the trees or vice versa but um i I really i I will tell you an area that um you know well i'll get to that but i would say people shouldn't be intimidated um and there's lots of as you know if you're painting uh other miniatures there's lots of newer painting techniques that get you uh to a finished product much faster yeah contrast has been a godsend yeah yeah, we've dabbled with everything that comes out, and I'm always I'm always looking for productivity because at the end of the day, I do enjoy painting. It's actually the one artistic thing I found in my life, um, and I'm I'm okay at it. Uh, but I do like productivity and getting them on the table as soon as I can before I move on to some other topic. That's always the risk. But uh, yeah, the contrast, the speed paints, uh, you know, slapdash or uh, what do they call that? But we've used various forms of that over the years to, to get it done. Right. So we've been, been chewing the fat introductory style for a little bit here. Ulrich has prepared some specific questions he'd like to ask. Before we get into those, I want to do a quick sidebar because this is historical. Ulrich and I are both uh, history enthusiasts. Ulrich actually went to school for it for a while. Uh, I'm just a fan of just studying things in history. So how... I mean, it, it seems like a natural thing that if you're getting historical wargaming, you get into, you know, the minutia of history necessarily. So how would how far would you say? Like, we don't like to use the word, you know, expert or anything like that here at this podcast. So really just like, what would you say your relationship is with the actual study of history? Uh, well, I, I studied history in school. Um, and uh, But even before that, I mean, it was just like many people, it's 
just the thing I like reading. So my biggest reading consumption is history, but uh, you know, I'm not an expert, although there might be little areas that I might know a bit more than others, but that's just because I've spent more time reading other people's work. But um, there's no primary research here. It's really just, to me, it's an exploration of history. So that's one of the big things. I like games, but it really is for one, for me, one more way that I use to explore history because to get into a period or to get deeper into a period, a particular set of events in a period, it's just fun. And it's a way to kind of get you focused on going through that process. And, and at the end of the day, you get to play a game about it. Yeah, it's uh, you're doing another facet to your hobby, which we're combining two hobbies with this case. Yeah, I mean, like, just like, you know, I'm, I'm reading, I'm watching videos, I'm watching movies, you know, it's I'm painting. It's it's a fun, I mean, it's just fun way to spend an afternoon. And then, of course, um, you know, the group you play with, usually there's people who are very enthusiastic about it. And, you know, you have great discussions and debates because one of the challenges, of course, is um, particularly on a scenario um, is like you're putting together, say, the Battle of Waterloo or Austerlitz or some somewhat somewhat else. So, you know, when you're trying to do a scenario uh, where you're, you're in a particular battle, you know, there's all sorts of angles to look at. What was the timing? What was the record? What were the units that were there? You know, the the reports we have of the decisions, you know, that help you shape that whole scenario and the starting conditions. And by starting conditions, I, I don't mean to be that, you know, specific about it other than, you know, obviously, you know, you have to provide some constraints to a game to, you know, at least make it interesting other than just, hey, I want to move pieces and we're not reenacting history here. Yeah. Do you have a particular favorite setting? Like as a, a fan of history myself, I'm a I'm a huge fan of post Sengoku era Japan, particularly the time of the Korean Japanese War, and I'm a fan of the Second Punic Wars. I don't know what Ulrich's prefer or favorite kind of setting is, but all of them. All of them. Okay. <laughs> that's my problem. It's like I love them all. Do you have so? Do you have a preference, George? Oh, uh, that's tough. It really depends when you ask me. But uh, <laughs> actually, I, you know, I would say I always go back to probably uh, pretty consistently, um, you know, nineteenth-century uh, black powder periods. So from Napoleonic up to. Um, you know, the Franco-Prussian War. Um, I find those, you know, the battles are very large. Um, they're, you know, there's an epic flavor to them. Uh, the technology has an impact. Uh, but I also, look, I'll, I'll play an ancient, we, I like the, um, you know, ancient Rome. Uh, I working, one of the armies I'm working on right now is um, uh, late Roman, late Imperial Roman, uh, when they're facing the Sasanian Persians. Uh, and it's just, it's literally, they, they fight a 30-year war uh, in the 7th century, and they both end up exhausted from it just at the rise of Islam. And uh, so it's just this fascinating period. So that's, you know, I usually I obsess on something for about a year, because that's usually how long it takes. Uh, it depends what else is going on to get, you know, everything on the table, have a, have a bunch of games, and kind of feel like you've done the period reasonably well. All right, I feel like I've, I've pulled away from Ulrich uh, enough. Why don't you go to your prepared questions, Ulrich? Well, I feel like we've already answered a couple of the big ones in, no, you do not have to have a PhD in history to play historical wargaming, and no, you don't have to be perfect. So I think the next big question is, where do you start? How do you jump in? Because as we come from 40K, we can go, well, 
you've got these skirmish games. You've also got these great starter box sets or there's avenues. Historical Wargaming, I don't feel like it has that clear start here demarcation. Yeah, I think some some manufacturers are doing a, a better job of helping people get all in one, you know, to get that kickstarted. So Warlord uh, does a great job with that. Uh, like I referenced their Epic uh, Games, Pike and Shot, they've come out with American Civil War, Napoleonics. And so if you look at those, it's, you know, you get a box with sprues, you get painting guides. Um, so I think that's an example of, and there's a couple of those out there where that's a great way to get started. Um, and, uh, you know, you could probably get those on the table, you know, much sooner than other things. At the same time, uh, you know, if you spend a little bit of time online and uh, if you get to a convention or something or just, you know, chat up people, um, there's so many manufacturers of miniatures in all sorts of scales. So we play in everything from, you know, three millimeter, one six hundred up to usually 28 mil uh, or 156 is is our range. Um, and, you know, so you could pick something like, uh, say, six millimeter, one two eighty five. And there's a couple of manufacturers for that. Uh, Bacchus uh, is one. Heroics and Ross, both UK companies. And um, those, the beauty of those is they paint up fairly quickly. They're small figures. And if you're looking for the large, larger battle, you can get that out of it. The other side of that is, so 28 mil is great for skirmish games. And we play a fair number of skirmish games. And um, I like those a lot. And I like those as a project because they're easier to get on the table. Um, you can get 28 mil uh, from the Perry Brothers in the UK or um, Empress Games. Um, but 15 millimeter uh, is, a, is a really nice scale. Uh, kind of in the middle there because doesn't take as much to paint so you can get more done. So, for example, right now I'm working on a project at Modern Ukraine uh, and there's a manufacturer, Curasan Miniatures in New York, who has a line covering modern Russia and very modern Ukraine stuff. And so you can pick up, you know, a couple bags, uh, you know, maybe you end up with 20, 30 miniatures aside. And you may not even need that depending on which rule you select to get something on the table. So if your goal was, it, it's actually an interesting challenge. How quickly could you get something on the table uh, in a respectable way, meaning the miniatures should be painted. That is that is one of those things where, you know, people will look at you a little funny, uh, but even there, uh, it's not too hard to get it going. So um, I, 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 it's hard to, there used to be a site called TMP, the miniatures page. It's very slow now. Uh, it's full of curmudgeons, but it does also a ton of, if you if you Google anything with miniatures, it'll probably be one of the links that shows up, and it's often a good way to orient yourself on a topic. And if you're listening to this and you're one of our Warhammer people, as a comparison, a lot of Warhammer infantry models will be on like 25, 28 millimeter bases. There's some 32s tend to be like the you know big you know bigger commander guys. So what what George just described, the higher end is close to what you're probably used to yeah and you already kind of covered like the various aspects of scale because i know picking a scale is also a big part but i feel like you covered that well but what if you don't know what setting to go with like what's a, i mean is there one setting that's new player friendly versus another or is it just what do you feel like uh a setting so i'm, I'm not sure i understand so you typically i mean if you can get one well, you've got the whole well, well, hold on then before we get into that because I, I like okay. i like the personal question that we've kind of overlooked which is what is your particular 
historical wargaming story, George. How did you get into it? How did you start this as being like your hobby and pick your settings? And what was your personal story, your journey? Yeah, so I probably got into, uh, I mean, besides playing with army men when I was very young, uh, with a rule-based system, uh, I played Dungeons and Dragons uh, many years ago. And uh, with uh, D&D, there was a chainmail rule set, which is for larger battles. So I think once you reach 10th level and you were a fighter, you started to build a retinue. And then so you needed these rules to fight larger battles. So they're still available as a PDF. It was a paperback uh, spiral bound. Uh, so that was my first. We would we would fight out larger battles um, based on a and d setting. So that was one thing. And then uh, I got into some naval war gaming. So um, there's, there's obviously infantry. There's air games where you can buy and build models. Um, and then naval. And naval is one of those that's fairly easy, especially if you're doing something like Napoleonic frigates, uh, where you're doing one ship on one ship. There was a set of rules back then called, uh, uh, um, what the heck, um, Heart of Oak. Very detailed rules for basically it only really worked for a small number of ships. It got very complicated, but it was one of those things. It was crunchy and fun to get into. So um, I did that, dabbled in that, and then as I met various people, um, saw what was available. And so probably about, I had a hiatus for about a decade. And then about 20 years ago, um, I started poking around again to see what was out there from the old stuff I'd played and just found an amazing supply of uh, miniatures. I mean, it, it's crazy. There's, there's a ton of miniature manufacturers, rules out there. Um, and with availability on PDF for rules and board game vault, or RPG net, you know, you can, you can just get a hold of so many different rules. So I did that, met the guys at the club I'm in, and then it just accelerated uh, from there. So, you know, that that's generally the sweep. And now, you know, is there a period I'm not interested in? Like as soon as you mentioned the, you know, the Japanese, the Korean area, that's actually one area I, we do play some samurai stuff, uh, but I, I, that's always fascinating to me. So I would never say no to any period. I might not paint stuff for it, but I'd certainly. It's funny because you mentioned naval. Because when I when I brought up the Japanese Korean, the thing that really interests me about that particular war, the Japanese Korean War, is that that was Admiral Yi Sun Sun's war, and it's that's all naval stuff that catches my attention there. But anyway, sidebar. <laughs> yeah, my brain immediately went like, oh yeah, I hadn't considered naval, but naval is totally a viable option. Yeah, it's actually if you're looking for ease of hey, I want to play a historical war game in a scenario, then naval gives you a lot of options uh there's either you know resin files you can get and if you if you do resin printing but metal ships there's plastic ships some people even take i mean if you have the old axe or have access and allies uh you can procure the one 1800 scale ships from there and they're fine uh but that is a great entry. Uh, planes are great and one of my favorite periods from world war one uh world war one there's a set of um I think Ares publishes it, uh, or Fantasy Flight. Um, they've changed the name over the years, but it's uh, Wings of Glory. And you buy these plastic planes, one 144th scale, beautiful World War One planes. And you just need two planes, um, and you play that out. It's a card-driven, so you're plotting the plane movement by laying out cards with arrows on them. So my, it's one of the few games I've gotten uh, some of my family members to play just because it's an easy pickup game. You can go from that to World War II uh, aerial games. 
uh, again, you can get crunchy, but mo a lot of them can stay pretty light. And then you can do uh, probably the last period that's of, super, of interesting as a game is Korea or Vietnam. You can get some, too, where you've gotten, you know, the aerial battles there are still dogfights. They're not totally three-mile, you know, standoff fights with missiles. Um, but anyway, uh, naval and aerial are, are the two quickest ones I can think of to get into. And those can both be played with like a small model count, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like I said, on the the naval, you might need a couple ships, a uh, handful. You know, depends on the scenario you pick. Uh, I can think of some that you might only need a dozen ships. Um, if you did something like frigate on frigate action, like you know stuff from the War of 1812 or Napoleonic, you just need two ship, uh, one for each side. Uh, you can have a lot of fun with that. And the aerial tends to work best. It's hard to manage more than one or two planes for, as a player. Yeah, I can imagine that. It is funny the way you laid out the settings for aerial because we've had aerial combat for, what, 150 years or something like that at this point? I don't know when the first like war plane was developed, but I feel like the, the, the dream or the image, anyway, of the ace pilot in a dogfight feels very World War One to me, specifically. Yeah, well, that that is, and that's why it's so fun. World War One, the first aerial battle is really, like, 1914. Um, they send up planes, because they can, they have them. They knew they could be useful. Uh, they send them up mainly for reconnaissance, right? They want to get see ahead of the moving armies. Well, as soon as you see your opponent throw up, planes for reconnaissance, you need to block their recon. And so uh, I think the first battle is on the Russian Eastern Front, and it's a Russian pilot who uses a grappling hook and a shotgun to attempt to stop uh, a German pilot. Um, and then it evolves. Within four years, you have some very modern-seeming planes and, and synchronized machine guns and bombing. So that's why World War I, for a lot of reasons, is a fascinating period. It's one of my other favorite periods is you go from stuff that looks pretty recognizable from Franco-Prussian or, you know, turn of the century to by the time you're through with the war, you've got tanks and armored cars and, you know, large aerial fleet. I'm, I'm really hung up on a shotgun and a grappling hook. That sounds so ridiculously Primitive. amazing. <laughs> yeah, but I know. I agree. World War One's amazing. Is there a lot of miniature wargaming set during World War One because that was that would be really interesting to try and write rules. Yeah, so there's there's a variety, uh, and it usually most of the time you have to pick a period in the war. Yeah. So if you're doing land battles, so 1914 early on before entrenchment starts is a war of maneuver. So it's very different than the later war, and we we game that a lot. We play that. Um, there's a set of rules, Great War Spearhead, uh, that we played fair amount of. Um, there's, uh, later in the war, um, when you're getting the trenches, you have to deal with different things. I play a set of rules there called, uh, square bashing from Peter Pig in the UK. There you use actually a gridded system on your table. So I have a cloth that I painted and I've, I've drawn subtle grids, but there we just fought the battle of Soissons, which was basically it's August, 1918. It's when the U S army is going into the line with French divisions on either side and pushing the Germans back north of Paris. And so the scale is massive there. And I love that too, but I've also played, um, there's a new set of rules called Scouts Out that's out. I haven't played it yet, but I've uh, ordered it. But I know what it's going to do. It's it's basically skirmish and recon level battle. So it's going to use 28 mil. Um, 
for, you know, a handful of figures, you know, and you're just doing some real low-level fighting. So I could go on about it, but it is a great period. I would say it doesn't get as much, if you're looking at the periods that get the most play, it's without a doubt World War II and uh, American Civil War and Napoleonics. It's, uh, it's funny because I feel like anyone listening that, like us, plays 40K, Warhammer... Uh, World War One feels like a natural point, if anything, because World War One has, and anyone who's more you know versed in history can tell me how wrong I am to say this, but World War One has that like morally gray aspect to it, where everyone's kind of in the wrong, which is kind of tangentially related to like how Warhammer's works. So it's just an interesting thing that I was thinking as you were saying it. And that's that's an interesting take, and I think you could certainly. Uh see that it, it it's less of that you know black and white you know good guys bad guys every you're right everybody had agendas and so yeah no i i, I get that and i for what i know of warhammer and i pick it up from the club I, I, that is one of the aspects i do find intriguing as well that i said warhammer you play 40 so yeah, um, it's all under the same banner yeah so yeah. it's equivalent it's just it's just sci-fi versus fantasy and even that is way simplification but yeah. it, the, the word the word applies <laughs> Yeah, so I played. I've played probably uh, half a dozen Warhammer games. Uh, met a met a fellow who had never played historicals, and I hadn't played Warhammer. This was about twelve years ago, and so we trade off. and I had a blast. I even ordered stuff, and I started down that scale. I was hoping my son, who was probably around you know thirteen at the time, would you know that would be the one area he might get into. And um, he played a few games, but it, I just ended up going back to what I what I knew after that guy moved away. But I found it to be very, I mean, like I said, those types of games where when you're done playing, it's like, oh, I could go for another one of those fairly soon. Yeah. I, just, I just think it's interesting because a lot of, you know, there's a there's a meme culture in Warhammer. That's one of the, the sure. things you'll see very frequently is the, oh, who's the good guy? Uh, we don't do that here. And, <laughs> and, and if you look at real world history, there are... And of course, history is actually quite nuanced, but like if you compare the Civil War, World War II, and World War One, two out of three of those have what is arguably a much more black and white scenario happening, morally speaking. Right, right. Yeah, no, well, certainly that's that's the, you know, the general take on it, and, and I generally agree with that take. It is, it does become one of those things where you get into the period and... You know, you're like, for example, World War Two. There's, there's certainly an, there's certainly parts of that where you're like, okay, do I want to field, you know, an SS unit? No, that's not really my thing, right? There are SS units who, you know, if you put together any scenario for Normandy, you know, you'd have to account for them. But there's a difference between accounting for them and oh, this is my favorite unit. So um, there, there's certainly with regard to that, and you can find the same issue with the American Civil War, where, you know, perhaps. Um, you know, people are a little too enthusiastic for, you know, one side or the other. And by that, I mean the South. It's the same problem we have with reenacting in the Civil American Civil War. There's a lot more Southern reenactors, even if they aren't from the South. Yeah, like, you don't federal. have to... You don't have to go into it if you really want to, but I know that in, in Warhammer, for instance, we have a... Uh, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. We have a Nazi issue, because yeah. there is at least half of the people game... People don't understand satire. Yeah, and half of the factions in the game are fascist satires, and you have a big chunk of our of the fan base who takes that not necessarily the best way. And so I, I am curious how how much of an issue the historical war gaming community has with that kind of thing. Yeah, I'd say uh, 
it's very small. It's not something you see it on a, on a game or a table or you know your club or anybody I've really gamed with. In fact, usually those are the people who uh, don't. You know, we do have filters as far as like you know joining our club particularly. Yeah. Where you'll see it sometimes at the conventions. Um, you know, you see somebody walking around in a inappropriate T-shirt that kind of you know what you know like the world tour type of stuff or yeah. You know, it's uh so yeah, but I mean everybody there's always a few but it's not a theme in the sense of you know there's a problem it's just more um some people just get too enthusiastic and they don't have a good sense you know? I'm, yeah. I'm glad to hear that because at least in like in, in our case it's been it's being fought against and is much smaller than it used to be but again i had no idea what another community anyway i'm glad to hear that yeah. the problem is games workshop is not as has not been as proactive against it as they should well, also, even mentioning Games Workshop creates that, as George has mentioned, there's not a monopoly on historical yes. wargaming. Like, which I do feel is a huge advantage that historical wargaming has over us is you guys have all the options in terms of models and rules and what you want to use. It's kind of an advantage and disadvantage from how he said it, because it means that there's not a easy one place well, to go. But well, So I'm glad you mentioned that, because that's actually one of my... And you guys are right on it. There isn't, there are no rules. There's not a fixed way of doing this. And that's what I love about it. I will tell you, though, that some people get introduced to historical miniatures wargaming through a particular, like, um, there's a World War II rules, Flames of War. I'm sure you... I've heard a lot about them. Right. So, uh, the, and they're, they're good. They're, and I have a, lo a lot of their miniatures. I just never play their miniatures in their rules because I don't. I think there are better rules, and I also object to the idea that miniatures go with rules. They don't go together. They're, you, you buy miniatures, you base them for, because people often say, well, how do I base them for these rules? And, and the general rule is that if you look enough, there's generally common basing for most rules. And at the end of the day, as long as both armies or all armies are based the same uh, and, and it fits your table space, it doesn't matter. Right. There's there's workarounds to anything. So but but Flames of War, Battlefront, uh, they make great miniatures. I have a lot of their miniatures, World War Two and their Vietnam. And uh, and they've been like the gateway for a lot of people because that's what was being played in their local hobby shop or clubs. And so it's it's great in that sense. What it can build, though, is if you go through that channel until you breathe fresh air, you may think that everything's kind of buttoned down that way. Because, for example, um, in their tournaments, when they run their tournaments uh, at the conventions, you know, you need to be playing with their models and obviously the latest rules. And, you know, it's the same kind of scheme of, you know, they update the rules every few years. And so <laughs> we are familiar with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a great entry, but people should realize um, use their miniatures, and then once you go on, you'll realize, oh, they're, I don't have to, you don't have to stick to that pattern. It's very liberating after that. Yeah, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's such an array of rules that you can start simple and then add granularity as you change up your rule sets to find one that does everything you want it to do. Yes, absolutely. You can, you can really run the gamut from, uh, hey, I'm going to play operation uh you know or overlord in an evening right to i want you know i want to play different battles within it and each one of those is going to take an evening and so uh yeah there's there's a real 
scale. And so rules have gotten simpler over time. As you look at the consumer consumption of rules and what, what the audiences want, there's definitely been a move towards streamlining and simplicity. You pick up a 30-year-old set of rules, and some of those are still playable and they're good, but they have a lot more detail uh, and take a lot longer to play as opposed to you pick up some, like um, Honor Publishing, Sam Mustafa publishes a ton of rules, Blucher uh, for Napoleonics, uh, Longstreet for the Civil War, Nimitz for naval stuff, and they're all very easy entry rule sets, and he's also, a, he's very passionate about streamlining rules. If it doesn't need to be in there, you know, uh, or if it's a one-off type of thing, it doesn't become a rule. So, yes, there's a huge range of them, and it is best to start simple, uh, I think the the biggest thing is, and I have kind of this thing of like, you figure out what's the minimum number of bases I need to paint or put together and set of rules to get it on the table and have a game. And that can be anywhere, depending on the rules, from, you know, 12, ba 12 figures, you know, for skirmish to maybe 24 for, you know, if you're doing some sort of historical, a small scenario. Uh, but you start simple and... You may never add in all those details uh, because you may not feel the need to. And I, I definitely, I'm biased a bit more towards the lighter side. I like collecting rules. I have a huge collection of rules uh, and I'll peruse them and I'm like, oh, that's a great you know, mechanism and that's pretty cool. But at the end of the day, I, I need to get it done you know, usually in an evening. Mm. Yeah. So, so you mentioned in that uh, a couple easy ones to get into so anyone who's listening can go back and, and pull out those specific ones you mentioned so you already covered that do you have a a particular set that you are you prefer i mean you basically the, what i got from your description was very much a an open-ended kind of like oh look at a lot of different kind of rules do what works for me and the person i'm playing with kind of stuff so i i got a very uh you know for lack of a better metaphor like a very mma kind of concept from how you describe rules but is there any system that you are you know perf you know drawn to specifically or that you like specifically yeah that's a good question um it just goes in waves but i'll give you a couple that i would you know i, I always like playing and i think they give a good game so uh greg uh with the channel uh is a publisher and he's written two sets of rules and his american civil war rule set which is called altar of freedom is is one of the best and it's for playing large battles like you know manassas first manassas second manassas gettysburg uh in an evening and now some of those are larger gettysburg you're breaking into days but um the basing is clean it's it's a very elegant set of rules he also published an ancient set called age of hannibal um which was built on a set of rule calls age of knights a medieval one and those are great i mean those are absolutely ones i would play um, I like Volley and Bayonet, which is great for Napoleonics. Um, there's a gentleman, David Brown, and a publisher called um, Ricewitz Publishing in the UK. It's also Two Fat Lardies, which we can go into. Uh, but Dave Brown has written a set of rules called um, General d'Armée for Napoleonics. Uh, and they came out about four years ago. He's got a second edition coming. And they're, they, again, they're very elegant. I think they capture... I like capturing command and control issues in the rules I play. I mean, that's that to me as a commander, I want to be that kind of overall commander, the Napoleon, um, you know, the Grant, where you're 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 basically balancing your resources to solve a very large problem. 
and you're, you have these constraints. So all of the rule sets I listed are, are good challenging sets for command and control. I, but they're, they're good. I mean, you're rolling dice, you're, you're doing damage, you're causing morale checks, all that. They just don't, they don't weigh it down so much that you're, you know, like, for example, and that set of rules, you're seldom looking at which particular weapon you're using. So in some of those periods, you could say all oh, these guys had repeating rifles or they have muskets or whatever. Typically, to make a rule set, cleanly you're, you're kind of abstracting that they, they have it's one set of weapons for these everything guys. fires roughly the same and does the same right. amount of damage right it's the overall effect not you know. yeah now one thing i like that you guys do is you review every set of rules you use for the channel and you break it down in a really clean way that i think is great for someone's like well that looks like a fun period what do they think of these rules and you can go and like oh okay maybe this isn't the rule set for me but then you suggest ones that might be better yeah no, that's, we're, we're, I mean, we all, again, we all love rules. So part of the, um, I certainly do, and I know everybody there is, it, the fun is we like playing new rules. It's not, I mean, it's not like we're looking for the perfect set. I mean, we're looking for a set, like if we're particularly starting a new period, we'd like, we sort of, that all goes together. Hey, what are we going to use to play this? Oh, these came out, I try these. We'll try a couple sets and we'll play for a year, two, maybe, you know, not every week. We, we literally probably play a different genre every week. Um, but, uh we like the rules part of it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that goes, you know, we're always looking for a set of rules that'll be useful. And we don't have to keep looking for the next set. Once we find it, we'll play it for a while. And then somebody will say, hey, somebody just published this or I found this old set. Let's give it a shot. Yeah, you guys aren't afraid to modify it. If you, so that's something you like, you're like, well, this works. But what if we just change this little rule to make it that much better? And there's a flexibility oh. that I can appreciate. Well, I think that oh, in yeah. general, rule inflexibility mostly only comes about when you're playing to play like tournament league kind of stuff. That's, I don't that's know. Funny. 40K is kind of steeped in rule inflexibility sometimes. You're unless saying, you're really comfortable with, you know, your opponent. You were going to say, George? Well, yeah. So it, it does depend. So, you know, some rules are pretty tight. And if you change one thing, you uh, you quickly throw the balance off. But we're, we're like every war gamer is, you know, Hey, I like these, but I didn't like the way it handled morale. Uh, I didn't like the way it did X. Um, there's always little tweaks. We actually try to play it a few times before we start, you know, you know, messing with it. Uh, but ultimately, as long as everybody agrees, um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll attempt that. But I have found that with some rules where we kind of uh, we change this, and next thing you know, you've you've created a different set of problems. So sometimes you have to respect, you know, the rule author, you know went through that process and made those trade-offs and ended up with what they thought was the best balance of those things. But again, if it doesn't work, then, you know, change it. I, I'm a I'm a regular D&D player, and you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, and it's funny the number of times I've heard one of my three DMs say something like, oh, hey, I heard about this, you know, homebrew idea. Let's give it a shot. Let's experiment with it. And do you like that? I do. I like the. I am very pro the openness to it. And if it doesn't work, I yeah. am very, very much on board being like, all right, don't have to do it. If it does work, do it. And in fact, I have one DM who I think is a little too open to it. Where like I mentioned something mm -hmm. to him, and I was like, hey, we can talk, look at this and talk about it later. He's like, well, let's do it now. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. one last thing we got to get in here is this is known. Every forty k player knows this, and is jealous of historical women. Your guys' tables are incredible. They make our tables look terrible. And then you watch how you build it, and it's like three simple things. And somebody was like, I, again, 
Is that a standard thing, or are you guys just showing off? What's that about? Because again, every 40k player that knows historical wargaming says the same thing. Like, yeah, their tables are incredible compared. To I ours. would guess before George answers, I would guess that that also has to do with the lack of monopoly. That you've got competition, you've got people trying to, you know, edge out for you know buy our ter- our terrain stuff. That'd be my assumption. Yeah, it's a pretty rich market in terrain, uh, and and, and it, I mean, I print terrain on my my printer. Um, I buy terrain. It's metal, plastic. It's you know resin. There's a, there's a huge, you know, we're always picking up terrain, and it's it's really fun. I mean, somebody will do a set for uh, Spain, you know, uh, for the Napoleonic period, and you know, it's it's nice collecting that stuff. But um, I'd say you know I've seen a range of tables. Um, uh, that you know, I think I think people generally, you know, it's a point of pride. You know, you want to dress the table, and um, you know, you like people to feel like they're, you know, it's a nice table, and um, you want those compliments. So yeah, everybody tries to 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 do do it do it right. Um, but there are a lot of great easy techniques to do it. You know, we 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 have a ton of ground cloths with various patterns and. Uh, we make ourselves. You buy the cloth from Joanne Fabric. You paint them up. You can buy stuff, printed stuff. And we have a variety of them. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it, you know we've done it so much that it's not hard to throw together a table that would be pretty respectable at a con. Uh, but that's just because we have the ingredients. We've made things over the years. We've made trees. Um, you can buy trees, but you can make a lot more, you know, of a certain scale on your own. We make roads. Uh, so we've got a pretty good kit to throw it together. But you go to the convention and particularly, so there's, it's interesting in the UK, I've only been to one convention in the UK, I've been to many here. Um, there in the UK, they even put on some even more amazing tables, but they, they do what's called like uh, demo games there where they're not really inviting the general populace to play they're showing it to people um in the u.s it's pretty much you come to a convention it's all you can eat you can register for so many games a day and um you know you're what if you bought your ticket you can if you if you there's still a seat at the table you can get it so at the u.s conventions you can have a range of people who just threw down some cloth and just you know want to play a fairly simple game up to very elaborate uh tables that are you know custom made for that that particular battle, which we've done a lot for the channel, you know, because the because we're filming stuff, we do a bit more of that than others do, because that's actually uh, our patrons will often say, you know, it's great. We love all these custom tables, but show us the techniques for just, you know, producing Austerlitz, you know, just throwing it with a cloth out there and, and putting hills underneath. And so I think that's fair. You should be able to do both. Yeah. And I think a big comparison point is, a lot of 40k games are stuck fighting in the same bombed out city. Yes. And I feel yes. like historical wargaming, it's the whole world, it's the whole breadth of history. There's just like this sense of creativity that historical wargaming has over Warhammer's like, oh, we're back in the same city. I, I will right. tell you, Ulrich, uh, aquarium terrain actually is very helpful for that. But oh, yeah. anyway. I've started introducing some stuff to break it up because I'm personally saying like, listen, we fought in the same bombed out ruin. What about a field? What about some trees? What about some hills? What about something that's not a bombed out wreck? So George, are there are there things that you wish you had known when you started? Yeah, I mean, there's like on the painting. Um, there's when I first started back and heavy on painting my own stuff. Um, there's a lot of stuff on the web to to look at, but there I think it's just more 
I wish I'd known that rule that, hey, you're going to put a lot of effort into this and uh, you could put less and a month after you're finished with it, you're going to look at them and be pretty happy with them. So it's that effort you need to put into it to get a pretty decent result. You know, you can be kind of obsessive about it. So I've learned that over time to I, I aim for more. Again, get it on the table while you're interested in it. You know, um, I think um trying to think of uh, other things that I've learned. Yeah, I'm drawing a blank. That, that's probably the biggest one is, is you know, be okay with, you know, a, a decent effort. You know, be, be proud of what you do. But at the same time, uh, you can take it way too far and you never really get anything done if you do that. <laughs> oh, as, the other, the other as, lesson is, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say, as someone who's been working on the same four models for, like, a month, admittedly, I don't get to sit down and paint as much as I want to. I, uh... I can feel that. <laughs> yeah, I just uh, broke that cycle myself. It's like they don't have to be perfect. Yeah. You can come back to them later. Yeah. Hey, the other, um, the, well, the other angle, and it's a problem because of the variety we face in genres and periods and miniatures, is you can get too many projects going on at once. It's part of the charm of it. You know, I'm always moving something along. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's important to aim for that um, how do I get stuff on the table? So recently I did a set of projects where, um, and this may seem like a high number to people entering, and I don't think you need this number, but for me, like I was doing some Great War stuff, um, and I was like, look, I need 40 bases on each side to do a reasonable scenario. That's a that's a medium, you know, it could be a large scenario too. And so how do I get, what's the quickest path to get 40 bases on the table? And which miniatures, which scale? And, you know, I, 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 I kind of did the last, probably three projects I did that way. And I found that to be very uh, rewarding because one, I, I, I knew it wasn't an open-ended number of figures and at the same, it was doable in a you know, few months, half a year time, and I could get stuff on the table. So I know that may sound daunting and, and you wouldn't need to do that. Um, and, and you know, another way to look at it too is like any of these things, if you're getting into it, there's a ton of stuff being sold uh, on eBay or other marketplaces of painted figures where people want to, because a lot of time people, you know, get into it, they paint up a bunch of stuff, they move, they lose the space they had. So there's always stuff out for sale there at a reasonable paint job. I've, I've got two more questions. I don't know what Ulrich has, but real quick, and a, a light question, just out of my own curiosity. What's the largest model you have? If I were to take a guess, I would say, I would bet either a giant artillery piece or a giant ship but I'm just curious. Oh, that's a great question. The largest model I have, probably a, um, a Huey helicopter for Vietnam Ooh. in 15 millimeter, one, what is that, 186. Um, so it's from Battlefront, Flames of War. We did a Vietnam episode two years ago, uh, and I was deep into that one, and I painted up a bunch of choppers for that. So just in size, those are probably, um, you know, four inches long, you know, nose to tail. Um, they're they're nice. They're have they're actually plastic, uh, but they still have a fair amount of heft. And then there are some ships that would approach that. Oh, I, there's there's a period of uh, coastal warfare, like World War II coastal. So uh, the Brits and the Germans off the coast of Europe, um, and then also like in the Pacific with PT boats. So those are small torpedo boats, and uh, Warlord makes those, and those are probably six inches. So there's actually like a trawler in that that's six inches long. All right, or oh. for war for forty k. Well, did you ask what our largest are? Yeah, uh... my largest model is I have something called a 
uh, a Morkonaut, which is basically a mech that orcs shove together with junk. And the actual size of it is probably about a foot tall and maybe like seven or eight inches wide, if I take a guess. Wow. Yeah, and I got something about that size. It's just, it's a knight, which is a giant mech with a chainsaw sword mm-hmm. for an arm. Yeah, I also have a, a rather large bomber that, other than the pilot being an orc, probably wouldn't look too out of place from something you're used to, because it looks just kind of like a, maybe a World War II bomber, but it's... Yeah. Yeah, I know which one you mean. I've seen stuff like that, and you're absolutely right. It just looks like a, a 1946. That's a that's a genre for World War II stuff. It's like, what if the war hadn't ended? Ooh. Um, and they kept upgrading. You know, you got jets early and bigger bombers and stuff. So Yeah, and that one is... That one's probably similar in size to the Morkonaut, except it's raised off of the base with a clear, you know, stand. So that's mm-hmm. pretty big, too. And, of Impressive. course, if you want to top out the scale and drop a small fortune, there's titans, which uh-huh. are about the size of a toddler. <laughs> yes, but those also are not necessarily, like, those are kind of fan stuff. The the, the largest yeah. the largest official model in the entire line is called a Manta. It is two grand, and it is the size of a skirmish game board. What it's... about a coffee table? Yeah, you, you can, can play. A coffee table. You can play a skirmish game on top of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a. Sh- what it actually is is a ship. It's a. It's just a ship. <laughs> yeah, if you really want to have the biggest toys. And the funny thing is, those mantas they they number, et- they etch in a number everyone that's made. So everyone that exists has. There's only like, what three, four or five hundred of them already. They do not move very fast. They come and go. Like they keep saying they're going to stop producing them, and then they come back one more time. And sell a couple more. Yeah, there's a couple YouTube creators who have have videos about getting mantas and and building them up, and it's fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll check it out. Anyway, Ulrich, do you I, have any other questions for I ask my? I just have. Well, I have one last closeout question, so I'll let you get one more in here. Well, because mine's also a closeout question. <laughs> okay, well then I'll do my closeout question. Is what is the best thing about historical wargaming, and why should more people play? Uh, well, I think the best thing is it's a um, multimedia way of exploring history and having a fun game so as we discussed the whole process of building armies or acquiring armies and terrain and and hey what did this what did this place actually look like at this time you know what was here what the hills looked like putting that all together you know who were the generals what were their personalities what were the random events that you know impacted things to me that's the whole process and it really is it's almost a I find it meditative in some way where you're really trying to like puzzle out how to best represent this event and do it in a way that's playable and a great social event. Because honestly, playing by yourself, which, you know, there's solo wargaming is a thing and there's ways to do it. Um, it's a lot of fun when you have a group of people around the table. It's funny, even though Warhammer is primarily a 1v1, I found that in my experience, having a uh, at least three people is the best experience. So you have someone who's kind of like not in the game themselves, but are part of the experience. Uh, my old club, there'd be conversations going between the tables between turns and people would be like, would be shit talking each other and going, Oh, you should do right. that. Like, Oh, it's your turn. Okay. Well, I gotta get back to here, but think about yes. that. And then arguing, which I'm sure exists also in historical war gaming. Cause they don't exist in history of like, you're wrong. This battle wasn't the fight decisive. This was the decisive battle. 
followed by, what are you talking about? If it hadn't been for so-and-so, so-and-so would have lost this battle. Yeah, there's debates. It's always there's always something being debated. And yeah, we have the same thing back and forth between the tables. You know, the club we meet on Monday nights and uh, it's uh, it's with a good turnout. Um, there's two tables, three tables going and or sometimes a very large one. And yeah, the, it's the social part that really at the end of the day, um, you know, I get a lot out of. I've met a lot of great people in the hobby. And then uh, my my final thing is, so we've been primarily asking you questions and you've been responding and tell, teaching us and telling us, and I've had a great time with this conversation. Is there, assuming that our, our audience, because you know we talk about like Warhammer all the time, so assuming our audience, the people listening to this right now, are relatively knowledgeable about what wargaming is, but not what historical wargaming, is there anything that you want to convey to these listeners that hasn't come up in the course of our questions? And... Failing that, any interesting stories that you want to share from your experiences? Uh, great question. Um, yeah, I mean, if you are familiar with wargaming, I mean, you're 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 really eighty percent there. I mean, the the difference would be, um, you know, acquiring the miniatures in a different way, and it's an open market for that, so it's easy. But yeah, I didn't find like the gentleman I was talking about who I introduced to historicals who've been a warhammer uh gamer uh solely uh there was absolutely no problem uh transitioning i mean so if you're a gamer no big deal um easy to do acquiring the materials to do it can be challenging but you could also find a local club uh if you're lucky depending where you are and and thing i find is certainly i found my experience is people are always looking for new players you know, so they're very happy to have somebody else to be around the table with them. So um, I think, uh, you know, in terms of stories, uh, the I don't know, this is, this is one that pops in my head. So this is more of a Little War story than just strictly historical. But um, there is an interesting overlap. So we did a UK tour last year. Uh, a number of club members went over. And we filmed a lot of Battlefields, uh, War of the Roses stuff, uh, Hastings. And we were going to a convention, our first convention. It was called Joy of Six, which is a six mil. So we were doing that. And everywhere we were filming, there were uh, we ran into, we were at the British Museum. Uh, and we ran into a young fellow who recognized us and, you know, had to get a picture taken. And we were, like, blown away. And then we were out at a pub in St. Albans, which is north of London, just like one of the town pubs. And there's three or four of us. We'd been doing a trip around the town because it was important, the War of the Roses. And uh, this guy walks by with his wife and he says, Little Wars TV? And literally, I mean, it was just crazy. This guy recognizes us. But the the reason he knew us beyond just being a gamer, and he was a uh, actually a, a Warhammer uh, gamer, uh, as he confessed, but he worked for the British uh, Department of Defense uh, running war games for them. So uh, the reason I mentioned that is over the last decade, and particularly the last five years, uh, all of the defense uh, organizations in the U.S. and in the U.K. and I'm sure elsewhere have massively upgraded their war gaming uh, talent. They've hired people to, to create war games for them. Um, they run more war games. Um, so we were actually down, and it's an episode that'll be coming out in a month. We were down at the Marine Corps Museum uh, in Northern Virginia to run the Battle of the Chosin 
reservoir and we the opponents that we set up teams between some of our patrons and uh, their opponents were from the Marine Corps University where they ran one of the things they do is run war games so that was a pretty wild connection of how this hobby is you know being used uh, and that's actually the origin we didn't talk about it but the origin of you know this type of wargaming was it probably predates the prussians but the prussians in the 19th century built sand tables and before they went out in the field they conducted these games to try to give themselves a you know a mental picture of what might happen excellent i, I mean that went in a direction i didn't expect so <laughs> that's really neat yeah that was that was crazy that was uh, that was a lot of fun so we had it we bought them a a pint and shared stories but uh it was hilarious when our when we were in the uk uh i didn't get to go uh we had another interview with perry brothers but uh a couple of the guys went to warhammer world and they had a blast there uh, <laughs> so i wish i'd gone because i again it's just one of those things you want to experience and uh, but they, they had definitely all right and this might this so this might be basically saying the same thing but uh, if you have any concluding thoughts on the discussion now would be the time uh, no, I, it's been a great uh, interaction with you uh, at both, and uh, I, the question, questions were great. I enjoyed answering them, and you know the reason I, I I was really excited to come on and do this is because I do think there is a lot of crossover opportunity, and I think people, if they gave it a chance or had the opportunity, uh, would really enjoy it. Well, I admit the idea of at the very least, because I it took Ulrich forever to get me really into miniature wargaming because I have a a thing where i'm averse to collecting things i just don't mm -hmm. like a lot of stuff in my life i'm a very minimalist kind of spartan kind of person mm -hmm. so the idea that i could say for instance play some naval stuff with only one or two ships that has caught my interest yeah we're going to pick a set uh time period and maybe start doing that because i love naval warfare <laughs> yeah i i think you guys that's a that's an absolute great place to start. And if you have uh, any questions, you know, as you move forward with it, I'd be happy to give you a whole menu of options. But I, I think you'd, you'd find that very rewarding. World War II is a great one. Uh, the ships, you know, very crunchy and fire in the guns and stuff is, but not overwhelming. But again, the frigate stuff is good. So yeah, let me know if I can help. All right. And then it's at, at this point, as thanks for coming and talking with us, we pull out the special soapbox for you to stand on where you can take this time to plug anything you want to plug to the listeners. Uh, well, I tell you what, I'll plug. Uh, we have a friend of ours, a friend of the club and channel, uh, Mark Fastoso, who is about to launch his new uh, wargaming uh, YouTube channel. And he, Mark is a... Uh, uh, PBS producer and obviously knows his way around a camera and so we're really excited about his upcoming uh, videos which should be launching in the next uh, couple weeks and it's called Mark's uh, Wargaming Room so uh, shout out to Mark alright well then thanks again and at this point we move into a section of our show we call Suggestions of the Week where we each suggest something it can be related to the conversation or not just something that we've been into recently that we think the listeners could benefit from going to look at. As an example, I'll be really quick. I saw a comedy special a while ago on Prime Video called Alpha Chick by Rachel Bradley. I love stand-up comedy. It was very good. If you've got Prime Video or Tubi, I think it's also on Tubi, then check it out. All right, I'll go next. A uh, couple weeks back, I saw Evil Dead Rise. It continues to baffle me that a franchise is running this long has never had a bad movie or a bad anything. Um, 
Personally, I think this is the weakest of the overall franchise, but that is saying something given the pedigree of it. And it's just, it's a fun, good, gory time. If you love any of the Evil Dead properties beforehand, you're going to love this. It also works up if this is your first introduction to the franchise because it's relatively continuity-free. So, George, you have a suggestion for us? Oh, well, I thought my plug was my suggestion. I'm not... Oh, you you can do that, too, if you wish. <laughs> no, I, I don't have anything that comes to mind at the moment. All right, one more time. What was it? Mark's... Uh, Mark's Wargaming. Mark's uh, Wargaming. Mark's Gaming Room. And uh, he has his first episode, I believe, will be a Band of Brothers-related episode, so World War II. But, uh, and he has some great interviews in there with, um, with some people affiliated with that project. Right. We'll be sure to point people that direction. Thank you. All right, Mark, Anyways. I believe that means you can take us into the outro then. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, do all the things that the algorithm demands of you because that is how we grow our audience. Without you, we don't exist. And whatever platform you're currently listening to us on, thank you for doing that. I don't keep a list nearby anymore because we're on a lot of the podcast platforms. So if we're on one, or if we're not on one that you would prefer us to be on, tell us about it so we can expand that list. As always, this is Mark Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time, and as always, stay honorable.